Chapter 19 of Taking the Bastille by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Queen's Favorite On entering her boudoir, the Queen beheld the writer of the missive. Count George Oliver Charny was a tall man of thirty-five, with a strong countenance warning one of his determination. His bluish-gray eyes, quick and piercing as the eagle's, his straight nose and his marked chin, all gave his physiognomy a martial expression, enhanced by the dashing elegance with which he wore his uniform of lieutenant in the royal lifeguards. His hands were still quivering under the torn lace ruffles. His sword had been so bent as to fit the sheath badly. He was pacing the room a prey to a thousand disquieting thoughts. "'My Lord Charny,' cried Marie Antoinette, going straight up to him, you here seeing that he bowed respectfully according to the regulations however she dismissed her servant who shut the door hardly giving it the time to close the lady grasped the nobleman's hand with force and said why have you come here count because i believe it my duty no your duty was to flee from versailles to do as agreed to obey me, to act like all my friends, who are afraid of my ill fortune, your duty is to sacrifice nothing for me, to keep away from me. Who keeps away from you? The wise. Whence come you? From Paris, boiling with excitement, intoxicated and bathed in blood. The queen covered her face with her hands. Alas, not one, not even you, brings me good news from that quarter. In such a time ask but one thing of the messengers. Truth. You have an upright soul, my friend, a brave heart. Do not tell me the truth at present, for mercy's sake. You arrive when my heart is breaking. For the first time my friends overwhelm me with this truthfulness, always used by you. It is impossible for me to trifle with it any longer. It flashes out in everything, in the red sky, the air filled with ominous sounds, the courtiers' faces now pale and serious. No, Count, for the first time in your life, do not tell me the truth. Your Majesty is ailing. No, but come and sit beside me. George, your brow is burning. A volcano is raging there. Your hand is cold. For she was pressing it between hers. My heart has been touched by the chill of death, he replied. Poor George, I told you we had best forget— let me no longer be the queen, hated and threatened. Be just the woman. What is the realm, the universe, to me, whom one loving heart suffices? The count went down on one knee and kissed the hem of her dress with the reverence of the ancients for a goddess. Oh, count, my only friend, do you know what Countess Diana is doing? Leaving the country? returned charny he guesses rightly 
muttered the queen. "'How could he tell that?' "'Oh, goodness! Anything can be surmised at this hour.' "'But if flight is so natural, why do not you and your family take it?' "'I do not do so in the first place, because I have pledged myself not only to your majesty, but to myself not to leave you during the storm.' my brothers stay as they regulate their movements by mine and my wife remains because she loves your majesty most sincerely i believe yes andrea has a most noble heart said the lady with visible coldness that is why she will not quit versailles replied charny it follows that i shall always have you near me went on the queen in the same glacial tone, awarded to prevent the hearer telling whether she felt disdain or jealousy. A witness could have divined this secret, however, from their manner in this privacy. Meeting romantically, without either knowing the other's quality, Marie Antoinette and George Charny had fallen in love with each other. The royal dame had let this passion swell to the highest point, when the king had surprised the pair in dangerous intimacy. There was only one way to save her reputation. She blurted out the first name of a lady that occurred to her, and protested that the Count was at her knees suing for this lady to be his wife, with the royal approval. The Queen had named Andrea Tavernet her companion, and the King, his suspicions dismissed, consented that she should be withdrawn from the convent where she had taken refuge to fulfill the pretendedly wish of Charny. Was it religion that impelled her, or love on her own side for Charny? It was love, for she eagerly accepted the proffered hand, and the wedding took place all the more, as she had had the misfortune to learn that she was used as the cover for the royal amour. But at the church door they separated and had dwelt apart ever since. Had she been truly a wife, the experiment of Dr. Gilbert might have failed, for mesmerism succeeds best with the single. "'Your Majesty,' resumed the Count, "'made me lifeguard lieutenant at Versailles, "'and I should not have quitted my post, "'only you ordered me to guard the Tuileries Palace. "'You called it a necessary exile. "'Your Majesty knows that the Countess "'neither approved nor disapproved, "'as she was not consulted.' "'True.' observed the other, still cold. "'I now believe my place is here,' proceeded the officer with intrepidity. "'I have broken my orders and come, hoping it will not displease you. Whether Lady Charny fears the course of events and goes away or not, I remain by the Queen. Unless you break my sword, then, being unable to die in your presence, I can be killed at your door.' or on the pavement without. He spoke so royally and plainly these simple words, straight from the heart, that the sovereign fell from her high pride, behind which she had hidden a feeling more human than royal. Count, never utter that word. Never say you will die for me, as I feel that you will do so. I must say so, for the time comes when those who love monarchs must die for them.' 
I fear so. What gives you this fatal presentiment, my lord? Alas, returned the nobleman, at the time of the American War, I was fired like the others with the fever of independence thrilling society. I also wished to take a hand in the liberation of the slaves of Great Britain, as was said in those days, and I became a Freemason, an invisible like the Lafayettes and Lamettes, under the redoubtable Balsamo, the King Destroyer. Do you know the aim of that secret society? The wrecking of thrones. Its motto, trample down the lilies, expressed in Latin as Lilia Peribus Destrue, in three letters for the initiated, L.P.D. I retired with honor when I learned this, but for one who shrank, twenty took the oath. What happens today is merely the first act of a grand tragedy, which has been rehearsed during twenty years in the darkness. I have recognized the bounden brothers at the head of the men who govern at the city hall, occupy the Palais Royal, and took the Bastille. Do not cheat yourself. These accomplished deeds are no accidents, but revolution planned long beforehand. Do you believe this, dear friend? sobbed Marie Antoinette. Do not weep, but understand, said the Count. Understand that I, the Queen, born mistress of thousands of men, subjects created to obey, must look on them, revolting and killing my friends. No, never will I understand this. You must, madame, for you have become the enemy of these subjects as soon as obedience weighed upon them, and while they are lacking the strength to devour you, they are testing their teeth on your friends, whom they detest as much as you, more than you. Perhaps you think they are right? master philosopher sneered the austrian alas yes they are right replied the lifeguard's lieutenant in his bland affectionate voice for when i idly rode along the streets with handsome english horses in a gold-laced suit and my servants wearing more gold braid than would have kept three families your people, twenty-five thousand wretches, without daily bread, asked me to my teeth what use was I, who set up as a man above his fellow men. You serve them, my lord, said the queen, grasping the count's sword-hilt. With this blade, which your fathers used as heroes on many a celebrated battlefield, the French nobility shielded the masses in war times. They won their gold by losing their blood. Do not you ask what use you are, George, while you, a brave man, swing the swords of your fathers? Do not speak of the noble's blood, returned the Count. 
the commoners have blood to shed also go and see the streams of it on bastille square go and count their dead in the gutters and know that those hearts now cease to beat throbbed as nobly as a knight's when your cannon thundered against them they sang in the showers of grape-shot while handling unfamiliar weapons and the oldest grenadiers would not make a charge with that lightness lady and queen do not look at me with that angry eye i beseech you what matters to the heart whether it is clad in steel or rags the time has come to think of this you have no longer millions of slaves or subjects or mere men in france but soldiers who will fight against me yes for they fight for liberty and you stand between them and that goddess a long silence succeeded the words and the woman was first to break it you have spoken the truth which i begged you to keep back she said because it is before you veiled seen distorted but there you may sleep to forget it but it sits on your bedside and it will be the phantom in your dreams as it is the reality of your waking moments i know one sleep it will not trouble said she proudly i do not fear that kind more than your majesty i may desire it as much said the count oh you think it our only refuge yes but we must not hurry towards it we shall earn it by our exertions during the day of storm they were sitting beside each other but a gulf divided them their thoughts so diverged a last word count said marie antoinette swear to me that you came back solely on my account that lady charny did not write to you i know that she was going out to meet you swear that you have not come back for her sake at this was heard a slight tapping at the door it was the servant to announce that the king had finished supper charny frowned with wonder tell his majesty said the queen without sitting apart from her favorite that i have news from the capital and will impart it to him continue she added to charny the king having supped must be given time to digest this interruption had not weakened the woman's jealousy as a loving one or as a queen your majesty asks if i came back on account of my wife he asked as soon as the door was closed do you forget that i am a man of my word and the engagement i made it is the oath that goads me for in immolating yourself to my happiness you give grief to a fair and noble woman 
a crime the more you exaggerate be it enough that i keep my word call it not a crime what was born of chance and necessity we have both deplored this union which shielded the queen's good fame i have been obliged to submit to it these four years yes but do you believe that i do not see your sorrow and chagrin translated under the form of the deepest respect reproach the queen for mercy's sake do me justice for what you see me do for if i have not yet suffered and made others suffer enough i might double the burden without rising to the level of the gratitude i owe you eternally his speech had irresistible power like all emanating from a sincere and impassioned heart yes yes i know all and i am wrong forgive me but if you worship some secret idol to whom you offer a mystic incense if you cherish one adored woman i dare not utter the words they frighten me lest the syllables should scatter through the air and vibrate on my ear oh if one exists keep her hidden from all and do not forget that you have a fair and youthful wife who should be publicly encompassed with cares and assiduity she should lean on your arm and on your heart charny frowned so that the pure lines of his visage were altered for a space what are you seeking that i should depart from the countess of charny you are silent that is your meaning i am ready to obey you but reflect that she is alone in the world andrea is an orphan her father the baron having died last year like a good old nobleman of the former time who did not wish to see the present her brother the knight of redcastle only appears once a year at court to bow to your majesty kiss the sister and go away without anybody knowing whither reflect madame that this lady of charny might be called unto god as a maiden without the purest of the angels surprising in her mind any womanly memory yes i know your andrea is an angel on earth and deserves to be loved that is why i think the future will be hers when it flees from me no no but i am not speaking like a queen i forget myself but there is a voice in my heart singing of love and happiness while without roars war misery and death it is the voice of my youth which i have outlived forgive one charny who is no longer young and will smile in love no more the unhappy woman pressed her long, thin fingers to her burning eyes and tears. Regal diamonds, more becoming than the finest in the diamond necklace, trickled between them. Oh, order me to quit you, but do not let me see you weep. 
pleaded the Count, again falling on one knee. "'The dream is over,' said Marie Antoinette, rising. With a witching movement she tossed back her thick powdered tresses, unrolling down her white and swan-like neck. "'I shall afflict you no more. Let us drop such folly. Is it odd that a woman should be so weak when a queen stands in such need of comfort? Let us talk of serious matters, such as you bear from Paris. From Paris, madame, where I witness the ruin of royalty. This is serious with a vengeance. You call a successful revolt the ruin of royalty? Because the Bastille is taken, Lord Charny, do you say royalty is abolished? You do not reflect that the Bastille has been built but in the fourteenth century, while royalty struck in its roots six thousand years ago, all over the globe. I would I could deceive, said the lieutenant sadly and proclaim consoling news instead of saddening your majesty unfortunately the instrument gives forth no other sounds than it was shaped to send stay i will set you to a cheerier tune though i am but a woman you say the parisians have revolted in what proportion Twelve out of fifteen? The calculation is easy. The populace stand in that proportion to the classes, the other two fifteenths being the nobility and the clergy. But six of the rate are women, and— Women and children are not the least of your foes. You are proud and courageous yourself. Do not omit the women and the children. One day you may reckon them as demons. What do you mean, Count? Do you not know the part the women and children play in civil commotions? I will tell you, and you will own that a woman is equal to soldiers. Are you mad, my lord? Had you seen your sex at the taking of the Bastille? He said with a mournful smile, hounding the men on to arm themselves while under the fire, threatening with their naked fist your Swiss soldiers caparisoned for war, yelling maledictions over the slain in a voice which made the living bound unto death. Had you seen them boiling pitch, rolling cannon, giving the fighting men cartridges, and the more timid a kiss with the cartridges. Do you know that as many women as men dashed across the Bastille drawbridges, and that if its stones are coming down now, the picks are wielded by female hands? Oh, my lady, you must include the women and the children who cast the bullets, sharpen the swords, and hurl paving stones from the roofs the bullets cast by a boy will kill your best general from afar the sword he sharpened 
will hamstring your finest war-horse. The blind pebble from this David's sling will put out the eye of your dragoon Samson, and your lifeguard's Goliath. Count the old men, too, for they who have no strength to swing the saber serve as buckler for the active fighters. At the taking of the Bastille, old men were on hand. They stood so that the younger ones could rest their guns on their shoulder, so that the balls of your Switzers might be buried in the useless old body, the rampart of the able man. Include them among your foes, for they have been relating in the chimney-corner for ever so many years what affronts their mothers endured. The poverty of the estates over which the nobles hunted the shame of their caste, humbled under feudal privileges. When the sons took up the gun, they found it loaded with the curses of the aged as well as with powder and shot. In Paris now, women and children as well as the men are cheering for liberty and independence. Count them all as eight hundred thousand warriors. Three hundred Spartans vanquished Xerxes' army, retorted the queen. Yes, but the Spartans are nearly a million, and it is your army that is Xerxes. <laughs> I would rather be hurled from the throne, she cried as she rose with clenched fists and face flaming with shame and ire. I would... Rather your Parisians hewed me to pieces than hear from a Charny, one of my supporters, such speech as this. Charny would not so address your majesty, unless every drop of blood in his veins were worthy of his sires and given to you. Then let us march upon Paris, and let us die together shamefully without any battle said the noble we shall not fight but disappear entirely like philistines march on paris when as soon as we enter within her walls all the houses will tumble down upon us like the red sea waves overwhelming pharaoh and you will leave a cursed name and your children will be hunted down like wolf-cubs. "'How must I fall? Pray tell me, Count,' demanded the sovereign haughtily. "'Teach me.' "'As a victim,' was the answer. "'Like a Christian queen, smiling and forgiving those who strike you.' If I had five hundred thousand like myself, I might say, let us have at them this night, and tomorrow you would sleep in the Tuileries, the throne conquered. Woe is me! You despair on whom was set my final hope. I despair, because all France thinks like Paris, and your army, if victorious in the capital, will be engulfed by the other towns. Have courage enough, my lady, 
to sheathe the sword is this why i have gathered brave men around me why i breathed courage into them wailed the queen if you are not of my opinion madame order and we march at once to paris speak so much devotion was in this offer that the hearer was appalled she threw herself disconsolate on a sofa where she struggled for a long time with her pride count she said at length i shall remain inactive as you desire i am not cross though i have one thing to scold you for i only learn by chance that you have a brother in the military service valence is in vercheny's hussars yes madame why have you never spoken of the young man he deserves a higher grade in the regiment he is young and inexperienced he is not fit to command if your majesty deigned to lower your view upon me acharny that is no reason for me to elevate my family at the expense of brave gentlemen worthier than brothers of mine you have other brothers isidore is another too ready to die for your majesty does he need nothing nothing we are lucky enough to place not merely life but wealth at your majesty's feet as he spoke the queen thrilled with this delicate probity a moan from the next room aroused them rising the queen ran to the door opened it and screamed loudly she saw a woman writhing on the carpet in dreadful spasms it is the countess your wife she faltered can she have overheard us no said he otherwise she would have let us know that she could hear us he sprang towards andrea and caught her up in his arms two paces off the queen stood pale and cold but trembling with anxiety end of chapter nineteen recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter twenty of taking the bastille by alexander dumas translated by henry l williams this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Trio of Love Without knowing who was helping her, Andrea began to recover consciousness, but instinctively she knew help had come. At length, with open but ghostly eyes, she stared at Charny without yet recognizing him. She pushed him away with a scream then. The queen averted her eyes, although she ought to have played the woman's part of comforter she cast off her sister instead of supporting her pardon her my lady said charny again taking his wife in his strong arms but something out of the way causes this my lady is not subject to fainting fits and this is i believe the first time she has had one in your presence she must have felt much pain returned the queen going back to her first impression that andrea had overheard them
no doubt said the count and you might let me have her carried to her own rooms the queen rang a bell but at the first tinkle andrea stiffened in a convulsion and screamed in delirium oh our gilbert the queen shuddered to hear the name and the astonished count placed his wife on a sofa the servant who ran at the call was dismissed queen and nobleman looked at each other as the sufferer seemed with closed eyes to have another fit charny kneeling by her had hard work to keep her on the lounge i think i know this name said marie antoinette from its not being the first time the countess has used it but as though the recollection was a menace andrea opened her eyes and made an effort by which she stood up her first intelligent glance was fondly upon charny who was now upright as if this involuntary manifestation of her mind was unworthy her spartan soul she turned her gaze only to meet the queen's she bowed at once good heavens what is the matter inquired the count you alarm me for you are usually so brave and strong to be prey to such a swoon such dreadful things have happened at paris where you were that if men are trembling at them women may be excused for fainting i am so glad you came away from the city is it on my account that you felt so ill queried the noble why certainly count said marie antoinette as the lady made no sound why do you doubt it the countess is not a queen she has a right to be afraid for those she loves oh madame rejoined charny perceiving jealousy in the slur i am sure that the countess feels more fear for her sovereign than for herself still why do we find you in the swoon in the next room inquired the royal lady i cannot tell for i am ignorant but in this life of fatigue and terror led these three days a woman's fainting is natural enough meseems true said the queen knowing that andrea could not be driven out of her defences for that matter your majesty has weeping eyes retorted the countess with that recovered calmness which was the more embarrassing as it was pure effort of her will and was felt to be a screen over her real feelings charny thought he perceived the same ironical tone that had marked the queen speaking a while ago it is not astonishing reproved he with slight sternness to which his voice was unaccustomed that a queen should weep who loves her people and knows that their blood had flowed happily god hath spared yours said andrea as coldly and impenetrably as ever but her majesty is not in question we are talking about you you have been frightened i frightened you cannot deny you were in pain has some mishap befallen you is there anybody you want to complain of this gilbert whom you mentioned for example did i utter that name said andrea with such a tone of dread 
that the count was more startled by the outcry than by the swoon strange for i did not know it till the king mentioned it as that of a learned physician freshly arrived from america i believe and who was friendly there with general lafayette they say he is a very honorable man concluded andrea with perfect simplicity then why this emotion my dear said the queen you spoke this gilbert's name as though it were wrung from you by torture very likely when i went into the royal study i beheld a stern man clad in the grim black who was narrating the most sombre and horrid things with frightful realism the murders of flacella and lunai i was frightened and dropped insensible i may have spoken in my spell and the name of gilbert would be uttered it is likely said charny evidently disposed to let the discussion drop at least you are recovered now completely i have only one thing to entreat said the queen to her life guardsman go and tell the generals to camp where their troops are stationed and the king will issue orders to-morrow the count bowed but darted an affectionately anxious look on andrea which the queen remarked will you not return to the king with me inquired she of the countess oh no replied the latter eagerly i beg leave to retire oh the king has been pleasant but you would rather not see him again i understand you may go and let the count carry out his instructions she glanced at the lord as much as to say return soon and his look replied as soon as possible andrea with a heaving and oppressed bosom watched her husband's movements but as soon as he had disappeared her forces failed her and the queen had to run to her with these smelling salts as she sank on a stool apologizing for the breach of etiquette in sitting in the royal presence the feeling between the pair was strange the queen seemed to have affection for her attendant and the latter respect for her mistress but they were like enemies at times you know dear countess that etiquette is not made for you but you have nothing to say to me about this dr gilbert whose sight made so profound an impression on you the woman had reflected in an instant whatever the relation between the queen who was suspected of having paramours and the king perhaps not so gullible as he looked marie antoinette might draw from her royal consort the particulars of the mesmeric trance in which gilbert had thrown the lady of charny better her relation than the king's with the energy of lunacy she ran from one door to another fastened them all and when assured that nobody could hear or see she flung herself on her knees before her mistress save me in heaven's name save me she wailed and i will tell you everything end of chapter twenty recording by john van stan savannah georgia
Chapter 21 of Taking the Bastille by Alexandre Dumas. Translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Queen and Her Master. Andrea's confession was a long one, for it was not until eleven at night that the royal boudoir door opened, and on the sill was seen the Countess of Charny kissing her mistress's hand. She went away with weeping eyes, but the queen's were scorching as she paced her room. She gave order that she was to be disturbed on no account, unless for news from Paris. At the supposition that Charny had at last perceived that his wife was still young and fair, the queen found that misfortune is nothing to a heart chagrin. But in the midst of her feverish torment came the cruel consolation. According to Andrea's confession, she had been wronged in a mesmeric trance, and Gilbert had humbled her pride for ever. Somewhere was the visible token of her defeat. Like a trophy of his shameful triumph, the young man had borne away in the wintry night the offspring of the occult love of the gardener's boy for his suzerain's daughter. She could not but be wonder-stricken at the magical combination of wayward fortune by which a peasant lad had been made to love this fine lady who was to be the favorite of the queen of france so the grain of dust has been lifted up to glitter like the diamond in the luster of the skies she mused was not this low-born lover the living symbol of what was happening at the time a man of the people swaying the politics of a great empire, one who personified, by privilege of the evil spirit who soared over France, the insult to its nobility and the attack on royalty by the plebeians. While shuddering, she wanted to look upon this monster, who by a crime had infused his base blood into the aristocratic blue, who had caused a revolution that he should be delivered from the castle, it was his principles which had armed Billet, Gonchon, Marat, and the others. He was a venomous creature and terrible, for he had ruined Andrea as her lover and wrecked the Bastille as the hater of kings. She ought to know him, to avoid him, or the better to fight him, and better still to make use of him. At any price she must see him and judge him. Two-thirds of the night were passed in reverie before she sank into troubled slumber. But even here, the revolution was her nightmare. She had a dream that she was walking in one of her German forests, when a gnome seized her from behind a tree, and she knew that it was Gilbert. She shrieked, and waking, found Lady Tortzel, an attendant by her pillow. "'The Queen is sick,' she called out. "'Fetch the doctor.' "'What doctor is in waiting?' asked the queen. "'Dr. Gilbert, the new honorary physician whom the king has appointed.' "'You speak as if you knew him. "'And yet he has only been a week in this country from America, "'and only a day out of the Bastille.' "'Your Majesty, I read his writings, "'and I was so curious to see the author.' said the lady, that I had him pointed out to me as he was in his rooms. Ah! Well, 
Let him begin his duties. Tell him I am ailing and request his presence. Surprised and profoundly affected, though he seemed but a little uneasy, Gilbert appeared before the queen. With her aristocratic intelligence she read that he felt timid respect for the woman, tranquil audacity for the patient, and no emotion whatever for the sovereign. She was vexed, too, that he could look so well in the black suit worn by the third class of society, and one the revolutionists chose. The less provoking he was in bearing, the more her anger grew. She had fancied the man an odious character, one of the heroes of impudence whom she had often seen around her. She had represented as a Mirabeau the man she hated next to Cardinal Rohan and General Lafayette, this author of Andrea's woes. He was guilty in her eyes for looking the gentleman. The proud Austrian conceived a wild hatred against one, whom she thought had stolen the semblance of the rank he had no business to aspire to. As he had not ceased to look at her while she was dismissing all her ladies, his persistency exasperated her like importunity. "'Well, sir,' she snapped at him like a pistol-shot, "'what are you doing in staring at me, instead of telling what ails me?' This furious apostrophe, accompanied with visual lightning, would have blasted any courtier into dropping at her feet and suing for mercy, though he was a hero, a marshal, or a demigod. But Gilbert made answer quietly. "'The physician judges by the eyes in the first place, my lady. As your majesty summoned me, I come not from idle curiosity, but to obey your orders and fulfill my duty. As far as in my power lays, I study your majesty.' "'Am I sick?' not in the usual meaning of the word, but your majesty is super-excited. Why not say I am out of temper? She queried with irony. Allow me to use the medical term, since I am a medical man called in. Be it so. Whence this super-excitement? Your majesty is too intelligent not to know that a man of medicine— only judges the material state. He is not a wizard to sound at the first glance the mind of man. Do you mean to imply that, at the second or third time, you could not merely tell me my bodily ail, but a mental one? Possibly, returned Gilbert coldly. She darted at him a withering look, while he was simply staring at her with desperate fixedness vanquished, she tried to wrench herself away from what was alarming while fascinating, and she upset a stand so that a chocolate cup was smashed on the floor. He saw it fall and the cup shiver, but did not budge. The color flew to her brow to which she carried her chilly hand, but she dared not direct her eyes again on the magnetizer. "'Under what master did you study?' she inquired using a scornful tone more painful than insolence. "'I cannot answer, without wounding your majesty.' The queen felt that he gave her an advantage, and she leaped in at the opening like a lioness on a prey. 
wound me she almost screamed i vow that you mistake dr gilbert you have not studied the french language in as good sources as a medicine i fear members of my class are not wounded by inferiors only tired excuse me madame he returned i forgot i was called into a patient you are about to stifle with excitement and i shall call your women to put you to bed she walked up and down the room infuriated at being treated like a great child and turning said you are dr gilbert strange i have a girlish memory of one of your name a boy who looked unkempt tattered and torn like a little jean jacques rousseau when a vagabond who was delving the ground with the spade held in his dirty crooked hands it was i replied the other calmly it was in seventeen seventy two that the little gardener's boy to whom you kindly allude was earning his bread by working in the royal gardens of trianon that is seventeen years ago and much has happened in that time it needed no longer to make the wild boy a learned man revolutionary ears are the forcing beds of minds clear as your glance is your majesty does not see that the youth is a man of thirty it is wrong to be astonished that little gilbert simple and uncouth should have become a learned philosopher in the breadth of two revolutions simple perhaps we will recur to that on another occasion said the queen vindictively but let us have to do with the learned philosopher the improved and perfect man whom i have under my eyes gilbert did not notice the sneer though he knew it was a fresh insult you are appointed medical attendant to the king she continued it is clear that i have the welfare of my husband too near my heart to entrust his health to a stranger i offered myself madame responded gilbert and his majesty accepted me without any doubts on my capacity and zeal i am mainly a political physician vouched for by minister necker but if the king has need of my knowledge of the scalpel and drugs i can be as good a healer as human science allows one of our race to be but the king most wants besides the good adviser and physician a good friend you a friend of the king exclaimed the lady with a new outbreak of scorn by virtue of your quackery and charms have we gone back to the dark ages and are you going to rule france with elixirs and jugglery like a faust i have no pretensions that way oh why have you given that branch you might in the same way as you sent andrea to sleep put the monsters under a spell who howl and spit fire on our threshold this time gilbert could not help blushing at the allusion to mesmerizing andrea which was of inexpressible delight to her who baited him as she believed she had left a wound 
for you can send people to a sleep she pursued you no doubt have studied magnetism with those villains who make slumber a treacherous weapon and read our secrets in our sleep indeed madame i have studied magnetism under the wise cogliostro that teacher of moral theft who taught his disciples how to rifle bodies and souls by his infamous practice gilbert understood all by this and she shuddered with joy to the core at seeing him lose color wretch she rejoiced i have stung him to the quick and the blood flows but the deepest emotions did not long hold the mesmerizer in their spell approaching the queen who was rash enough to look up in her triumph and let her eyes be caught he said you are wrong to judge fellow-creatures so harshly you denounce cogliostro as a quack when you had a proof of his real science when you were the archduchess of austria and first came to france when i saw you at tavernay did not that wonder-worker whom you decry show to your majesty in a clear cup of water such a picture of your fate that you swooned away gilbert had not seen the forecast but he knew from his master no doubt what marie antoinette had been shown he struck so hard that she turned dreadfully pale yes she said in a hoarse voice he showed me a hideous machine of bloodshed but i do not yet know that such a thing exists i know not that but he cannot be denied the rank of sage who held such might over his fellow-beings his fellows sneered the queen nay his power was so great that crowned heads sank beneath his level went on gilbert shame i tell you that cogliostro was a cowardly charlatan and his mesmeric sleep a crime in one case it resulted in a deed for which human justice represented by me shall seize the author and punish him madame be indulgent for those who have sinned oh, oh you confess then she thought by the gentleness of his tone that he was imploring her mercy some forgot herself and looked at him to scorch him with her indignation but her glance crossed his only to melt like a steel blade on which the electric fluid falls and she felt her hatred change to fright while she recoiled a step to elude coming wrath ah madam do you understand what the power is i had from the master whom you defamed believe that if i were not the most respectful of your subjects i could convince you by a terrible experiment i might constrain you to write down with your own hands lines that would convince you when you read them at your release from the charm but mark how solid is the patience and the generosity of the man whom you have been insulting and whom you placed in the bastille you regret it was broken open because he was released by the people 
and you will hate me and continue to doubt when i relax the bond with which i hold you ceasing to govern her with glances and magnetic passes he allowed her to regain some self-control like the bird in the vacuum to whom a little air is restored send me to sleep force me to speak or, or write while sleep-bound cried the queen white with terror have you dared do you know that your threat is high treason a crime punishable with death do not cry out too soon if i thus charmed you and forced you to betray your inmost secrets it would be with a witness by he would repeat your revelations so as to leave you no doubt a witness but think sir that a witness to such a deed would be an accomplice a husband is not the accomplice to an experiment he favors on his wife the king screamed marie antoinette with dread revealing rather the wife than the medium reluctant to make a scene for the spiritualist fie dr gilbert the king your natural defender your sustainer replied gilbert quietly he would relate when you were awakened how respectful i was while proud in proving my science on the most venerated of sovereigns he left her to meditate on the depth of his words i see she said at length you must be a mortal enemy or a proven friend impossible friendship cannot dwell beside fear or distrust between subject and monarch friendship cannot live but on the confidence the subject inspires i have made the vow not to use my weapons but to repulse the wrongs done me all for defence nothing for offence alas moaned the queen i see that you set a trap after frightening the woman you seek to rule the queen no lady i am not a paltry speculator you are the first woman in whom i have found all feminine passions with all the dominant faculties of man you can be a woman and a friend i admire you and would serve you i will do it without receiving aught from you merely to study you i will do more to show you how i serve you if i am in the way send me forth send you hence said she with gladness but no doubt you will reflect that my power can be exercised from afar it is true but do not fear i shall not employ it the queen was musing unable to reply to this strange man when steps were heard in the corridor the king she exclaimed then point out the door by which i may depart without being seen by him stay she said he bowed 
and remained impassable while she sought to read on his brow to what point triumph rose in him, more plain than anger or disquiet. At least he might have shown his delight, she thought. End of chapter 21 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter Twenty Two of Taking the Bastille by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Private Council. Louis entered briskly but heavily, as was his wont. His manner was busy and curious, strongly contrasting with the Queen's cold rigidity. His high color had not left him. An early riser and proud of the heartiness he had imbibed with the morning breeze, he breathed noisily and set his foot vigorously on the floor. "'The doctor? What has become of the doctor?' he inquired. "'Good morning, sire. How do you feel this morning? Are you tired?' "'I have slept six hours, my allowance. I feel very well, and my head is clear. But you are a little pale. I heard you had sent for the new doctor.' "'Here is Dr. Gilbert,' said the Queen, standing aside from a window recess where the doctor had been screened by the curtains. "'But were you unwell that you sent for him?' continued the monarch. "'You blush. You must have some secret, since you consult him instead of the regular doctors of the household. But have a care. Dr. Gilbert is one of my confidential friends.' And if you tell him anything, he will repeat it to me. The queen had become purple from merely being red. Nay, sire, said Gilbert, smiling. What? Has the queen corrupted my friends? Marie Antoinette laughed one of those dry, half-suppressed laughs signifying that the conversation has gone far enough, or it fatigues. Gilbert understood, but the king did not. Come, doctor, since this amuses the queen, let me hear the joke. I was asking the doctor why you called him so early. I own that his presence at Versailles much puzzles me, said the queen. I was wanting the doctor to talk politics with him, said Louis, his brow darkening. Oh, very well said she, taking a seat as if to listen. "'But we are not going to talk pleasant stuff, so we must go away to spare you an additional pang.' "'Do you call business matters pangs?' majestically said the Queen. "'I would like to stay. Dr. Gilbert, surely you will not disobey me.' "'But—' I want the doctor's opinion, and he cannot give it according to his conscience if you are by us. What risk does he run of displeasing me by speaking according to his conscience? She demanded. That is easy to understand, madame. You have your own line of policy, which is not always ours. So... You would clearly imply that the Gilbert policy runs counter to mine? It should be so. 
from the ideas your majesty knows me to entertain said gilbert but your majesty should know that i will speak the truth before you as plainly as to his majesty that is a gain said marie antoinette truth is not always good to speak observed the monarch when useful suggested gilbert and the intention good added the queen we do not doubt that said king louis but if you are wise madame you will leave the doctor free use of his language which i stand in need of sire since the queen provokes the truth and i know her mind is too noble and powerful to dread it i prefer to speak before both my sovereigns i ask it i have faith in your majesty's wisdom said gilbert bowing to the lady the question turns on the king's glory and happiness then you were right to have faith in me commence sir well i advise the king to go to paris a spark dropping into the eight thousand pounds of gunpowder in the city hall cellars would not have caused the explosion of this sentence in the queen's bosom there said the king who had been startled by her cry i told you so doctor the king proceeded the indignant woman in a city revolted among scythes and pitchforks borne by the villains who massacred the swiss and murdered count lanai and provost flacelle the king crossing the city hall square and slipping in the blood of his defenders you are insane to speak thus sir gilbert lowered his eyes as in respect but said not a word the king writhed in his chair as though on a red-hot grid madame said the doctor at last i have seen paris and you have not even been out of the palace to see versailles do you know what paris is about storming some other bastille jeered the queen assuredly not but paris knows there is another fortress between it and the king the city is collecting the deputies of its forty-eight wards and sending them here let them come said the queen with fierce joy they will be hotly received take care madame for they come not alone but escorted by twenty thousand national guards what is that do not speak lightly of an institution which will be a power one day it will bind and unbind my lord you have ten thousand men who are equal to these twenty thousand said the queen call them up to give these blackguards their chastisement and the example which all this revolutionary spawn has need of i would sweep them all away in a week if i were listened to how deceived you are by others said gilbert shaking his head sadly alas think of civil war excited by a queen 
only one did so and she went down to the grave with the epithet of a foreigner excited by me what do you mean did i fire on the bastille without provocation pray instead of urging violence hearken to reason interposed the king continue he said to gilbert spare the king a battle with doubtful issue these hates which grow hotter at a distance these boastings which become courage on occasion you may by gentleness soften the contact of this army with the palace let the king meet them these twenty thousand are coming perhaps to conquer the king let him conquer them and turn them into his own bodyguard for they are the people the king nodded approval but do you not know what will be said she cried that the king applauds what was done the slaying of his faithful switzers the massacre of his officers the putting his handsome city to fire and blood you will make him dethrone himself and thank these gentlemen a disdainful smile passed over her lips no madame there is your mistake this conduct would mean there was some justice in the people's grievances i come to pardon where they overstepped the dealing of wild justice i am the king and the chief the head of the french revolution as henry the fourth was the head of the league and the nation your generals are my officers your national guards my soldiers your magistrates my own instead of urging me on follow me if you can the length of my stride will prove that i lead in the footsteps of charlemagne he is right the king said ruefully oh sire for mercy's sake do not listen to this man your enemy her majesty tells you what she thinks of my suggestion said gilbert i think sir that you are the only person who has ever ventured to tell me the truth commented louis the sixteenth the truth is that what you have told exclaimed the queen heaven have mercy yes madame said gilbert and believe me that it is the lamp by which the throne and royalty will be prevented rolling into the abyss he bowed very humbly as he spoke to the queen who appeared profoundly touched this time by his humility or the reasoning the king rose with a decisive air as though determined on realization but from his habit of doing nothing without consulting with his consort he asked do you approve it must be was her rejoinder i am not asking for your abnegation but support to my belief in that case i am convinced that the realm will become the meanest and most deplorable of all in christendom you exaggerate deplorable i grant 
but mean your ancestors left you a dreary inheritance said marie antoinette sorrowfully which i grieve you should share added louis allow me to say sire that the future may not be so lamentable interposed gilbert who pitied the dethroned rulers a despotic monarchy has ceased but a constitutional one commences am i the man to found that in france asked the king why not exclaimed the queen catching some hope from gilbert's suggestion madame i see clearly from the day when i walk among men like themselves i lose all the factitious strength necessary to govern france as the louis before me did the french want a master and one who will wield the sword i feel no power to strike not to strike those who would rob your children of their estate cried the queen and who wish to break the lilies on your crown what am i to answer if i answer no i raise in you one of those storms which embitter my life you know how to hate so much the better for you you can be unjust i do not reproach you for it is an excellent trait in the lordly madame we must resign ourselves it takes strength to push ahead this car with scythe-bladed wheels and we lack strength that is bad for it will run over our children sighed marie antoinette i know it but we shall not be pushing it we can draw it back sire oh beware said gilbert deeply it will crush you then let him speak what the newspapers have been saying for a week past at any rate he wraps up the bitterness of his free speech said the king in short i shall go to paris who knows but you will find it the gulf i fear said the queen in a hollow irritated voice the assassin may be there with his bullet who will know among a thousand threatening fists which holds the dagger fear nothing of that sort they love me said louis you make me pity you for saying that they love you who slay and mangle and cut the throats of your representatives the governor of the bastille was your image they killed that brave and faithful servitor as they would kill you in his stead the more easy as they know you and that you would turn the other cheek to the smiter if you are killed what about my children concluded the queen madame struck in gilbert deeming it time he intervened the king is so respected that i fear that his entry will be like that of juggernaut 
under whose wheels the fanatics will throw themselves to be crushed this march into paris will be a triumphal progress i am rather of the doctor's opinion said the monarch say you are eager to enjoy this triumph said the queen the king is right and his eagerness proves the accuracy of his judgment on men and events the sooner his majesty is the greater will be his triumph by delay the gain may be lost this promptness will change the king's position and make the act in some way his order lose time sire and their demand will be an order not to-day master gilbert said the queen to-morrow grant me till then and i swear not to oppose the movement but who knows what will happen meanwhile expostulated the king in despair marie you seem doomed to ruin me the assembly will send me some addresses which will rob me of all the merit in taking the first step gilbert nodded better so said the queen with sullen fury refuse and preserve your regal dignity go not to paris but wage war from here and if we must die here let us fall like rulers like masters like christians who cling to their god as to their crown the king saw from her excitement that he must give way but what do you expect between whiles he inquired a reinforcement from germany or news from town it was a coat of mail which the king refused to wear but her misapprehension of the monarch who knew he was not of the times when kings wore armor cost a precious time without other safeguard than gilbert's breast as the latter rode in a coach beside the monarch the visit to paris was made in the queen's drive in the champs elysees mayor bailey offered him the city keys saying sire i bring your majesty the keys of the good city they are the same offered to henry fourth he won his people but the people have now won their king on the return all having passed smoothly crossing louis fifteenth place a shot was fired from across the river and gilbert felt a stroke the bullet had hit one of his steel vest buttons and glanced off into the crowd and killed an unfortunate woman the king heard her scream and heard the shot burning powder in my honor he said yes sire was gilbert's easy reply it was never known what hand fired this regicidal shot which justified the queen's fear that her husband would be assassinated while all was festivity at paris gloom settled down on versailles at eventide with darkness came its retinue of fears and sinister visions when suddenly uproar was heard at the end of the town the queen shuddered and ran to a window which she opened with her own hand a hussar came up to the palace it was a lieutenant sent by charny who had gone on toward paris to get the news he reported that the king was safe and sound and that he would arrive shortly taking her two children by the hand marie antoinette went down and out upon the grand staircase 
where were grouped the servants and the courtiers. Her piercing eye perceived a woman in white, leaning on the stone balustrade and eagerly looking into the shadows. It was Countess Andrea, enwrapped in expectation of her husband, so that she did not see her royal mistress or disdained to notice her. Whether she bore the queen rancor or merely yearned to see her husband, it was a double stab for the beloved of Charny. But she had determined on the righteous course. She trod her jealousy underfoot. She immolated her secret joys and wrath to the sanctity of the conjugal oath. No doubt from heaven was sent this salutary love to raise her husband and children above all else. Her pride, too, lifted her above earthly desires, and she could be selfish without deserving blame. As the coach came up, she descended the steps, and when its door was opened and Louis stepped out, she did not notice how the grooms and footmen hastened to tear off the rosettes and streamers of the new popular colors, with which Belay and Petou and others of the throng had decorated the vehicle and horses. With an outcry of love and delight, the queen embraced the king. She sobbed, as though she had fully expected never again to see him. In her impulse of an overburdened heart, she did not remark the hand-grasp the Charnies exchanged in the darkness. As the royal children kissed their father, the elder boy spied the cockade reddened by the torchlight on his father's hat, and exclaimed with his childish astonishment, "'Oh, papa, what is on your white cockade? Blood?' It was the national red. Spying it herself, the queen plucked it off with profound disgust, as the king stooped as if to kiss his daughter, but really to hide his shame. The madwoman did not think that she was insulting the nation, which would repay her at an early day. "'Throw the thing away!' she cried, casting it down the steps so that all the escort tramped over it. This strange transition extinguished her phase of marital love. She looked round for Charny without appearing to do so. He had fallen back into the ranks like a soldier. "'I thank you, my lord,' she said to him at last. "'You have kept your promise to restore the king to me unhurt.' "'Who is that?' inquired the sovereign. "'Oh, Charny! But where is Gilbert, whom I do not see?' "'Come to supper,' said the queen to change the subject. "'Go to the countess, my lord Charny, and bring her. We shall have a family supper-party to-night.' She was the queen again, but still she was vexed that the count, who had been sad, should cheer up at the prospect of his wife being in the company. End of chapter 22 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 23 of Taking the Bastille by Alexander Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Why the Queen Waited a little calm succeeded at Versailles, the political and mental tempests which we have chronicled. The king breathed again and consoled himself with his regaled popularity for what his bourbon pride had suffered in truckling to the Paris mob. The nobility prepared to flee or to resist. The people watched and waited. 
assured that she was the butt of all the slings and arrows of hatred the queen made herself as inconspicuous as possible she knew that for her party she was the centre of all hopes since the king went to paris she had not seen dr gilbert but the chance was offered her when they met in the vestibule of the royal apartments going to the king she challenged as he bowed deeply as physician or counsellor she continued with a smile betraying some irony as doctor it is my day on duty he replied she beckoned him to follow her into a little side room you see sir she began that you were wrong the other day when you assured me that the king ran no risk of murder a woman was killed by a shot aimed at him and striking you without injury who told me so the gentleman of the escort who saw your button fly i do not believe it was a crime or if so one to be imputed to the people retorted gilbert hesitatingly who are we to attribute it to then she demanded fixing her eyes upon him i have been studying the masses some time he responded when in fury the mobs tear and slay like a tiger but in cold blood they seek no go-betweens they want to make the blood fly with their own claws and fangs as witness foulon and his son-in-law berthier savigny accused of complicity in the great grain fraud and ripped to pieces by the crowd and flacella slain by a pistol but the accounts of their atrocious executions may be untrue we crowned heads are so engirt by flatterers madame you do not believe any more than i that flacella was killed by the mob others of higher degree were more interested in his death as for the king those who love their country believe he is useful to it and these stand between him and the assassin eagerly alas said she there was a time when a good frenchman would have expressed his sentiments in better terms than those it was not possible then to love his country without loving his rulers gilbert blushed and bowed feeling the thrill at his heart which the queen could impart in her periods of winning intimacy madame i beg to boast that i love the monarchy better than many are we not at an era when it is enough to say so but actions should speak madame i was your enemy yesterday when you had me imprisoned and now i am your servant but whence the change it is not in your nature doctor to change your feelings opinion and belief so readily you are a man with a deep-rooted memory you know how to lengthen out your vengeance tell me the aim of your change madame you reproach me with loving my country too dearly you love it so as to stoop to serve me the foreigner no i am no frenchwoman 
I love my country. You smile, but it is my country. I have adopted it. German by birth, I am French through the heart. But I love France through the king and the respect due to the God which has consecrated me to it. But I understand you. It is not the same thing. You love French purely and simply for France's sake. Madame, I cannot be outspoken without disrespect, replied the doctor. Oh, she said, dreadful is this epic when men pretending to be honorable isolate two principles that should never be parted and have always marched forward together. France and her king. Is there not a tragedy in which a queen, abandoned by all, is asked, what remains? And she answers, I? Well, like Medea, I am here, and we shall see the outcome. She passed out in vexation, leaving Gilbert in stupor. By her fiery breath, she had blown aside a corner of the veil beyond which simmered the hell-broth of the anti-revolution. "'Let us look to ourselves,' thought Gilbert. "'The queen is nursing a scheme.' "'Plainly nothing can be done with this man,' muttered the sovereign, regaining her rooms. "'He is a strong one, but he lacks devotion.' poor princess, to whom servility is thought to be devotion. Marie Antoinette felt the weight upon her most when alone. As woman and queen, she had nothing to lean upon or help her support the crushing burden. Doubt or wavering was on either hand. Uneasy about their fortunes, the sycophants fled. Her relatives and friends brooded on exile. The proudest of all, Andrea, gradually drew aside from her body and soul. The noblest and dearest man of all, Charny, was wounded by her fickleness and was a prey to doubt. She who was instinct and sagacity themselves was fretted by the crisis. This pure, unalloyed heart has not changed, but it is changing, she reasoned. A dreadful conviction for the woman who loved with passion and insupportable for one who loved with pride, as the queen did Charny. Being a man, all that George understood was that the queen was unfairly jealous of his wife. Nothing pains a heart incapable of false play, so much as to be suspected of it. Nothing so points attention on the person unjustly accused of inspiring an attachment than jealousy. The suspected one reflects, it looks from the jealous heart to the one believed to be its rival. Indeed, how suppose that a noble and elevated creature should be vexed over a trifle? What is a lovely woman to be worried about? What, the powerful lady? Charny knew that Andrea had been the bosom friend of the queen, and wondered why their love had cooled and the confidant stood away. He had to look to her, and the idol lost so much of the eye adulation as Andrea gained. 
by her unfairness and anger marie antoinette told charny that he must feel less a lover for her he sought for the cause and naturally whither the queen was frowning he pitied andrea who had married him by royal command and was but nominally his wife marie antoinette's burst of affection in receiving her husband on his return from paris had opened the eyes of the count he began to steel himself against her and she while ill-treating him resumed showering favor on andrea the latter submitted without astonishment but also with no gratitude long since she reckoned herself as belonging to her royal mistress and she let the queen do what she liked the result was a curious situation such as women act and comprehend best andrea felt all her husband underwent and she pitied him and showed her pity from her love being of the angelic kind which is not fed on hope this compassion led to a gentle approach she tried to comfort george without letting him see that she needed the same consolation this was done with that delicacy called womanly because the softer sex best practice it marie antoinette trying to reign by dividing saw she was on the wrong road and was forcing together the souls which she wanted to keep aloof hence in the silence of the night and the lonesomeness she felt such wrestlings with giant despair as must give the spirit a high idea of its power since it can struggle with so vast a might she would have succumbed had it not been for the diversion of politics in her pride she ascribed her decay to the depreciation she had let herself as a woman suffer lately in her active mind to think was to act she set to work without losing a moment but unfortunately the work was for her perdition seeing that the parisians had turned into soldiers and appeared to intend war she resolved to show them what war really is for two months the king had been striving to retain some shred of royalty with the peerage and mirabeau he had tried to neutralize the democratic spirit effacing it in france in this strife the monarch had lost all his power and part of his popularity the queen had gained the nickname of lady veto she had been known as the austrian then as lady deficit on account of the hole in the treasury attributed to her generosity to her favorites now lady veto she was to bear lastly the title of the widow capet after the conflict in which the queen had endeavored to engage her friends by showing them that they were endangered with her she remarked that only sixty thousand passports had been applied for by the higher classes fleeing to foreign parts this had struck the queen she purposed her own escape so as to leave the true royalists in france to wage a civil war her plan was not bad and it must have succeeded had it not been for the evil genius who was plotting behind the queen strange destiny this woman who inspired great devotion nowhere could attach discretion it was known all over town that she intended to take to wing before she had settled herself and from that time it was impracticable meanwhile the flanders regiment famous for its royalist fervor 
arrived at Versailles. Asked for by the town council as the guarding of the palace exceeded their powers at command. It made a solemn entrance into the court town, and received an ovation from the courtiers, other soldiers, and a band of young nobles who had set up a company of their own with a special uniform, to which were joined the knights of St. Louis, officers on the retired list, and adventurers. Only one black spot marred the sky. Liege had revolted against the Austrian emperor, and this made it difficult for him to succor the daughter whom he had wedded to his brother on the French throne. After the Flanders regiment had been welcomed, the lifeguards' officers voted to give them a dinner. It was fixed for the 1st of October. As the king had no politics to trouble him, since the new government took all business on themselves, he passed the days in hunting. The queen was applied to for the dinner to take place in the palace. She let the guards' officers have the theatre, which was boarded over to make more room, and a hall adjoining. She shut herself up alone, save for her children and Andrea, sad and thoughtful, where the toasts and the clink of glasses should not disturb her. At the palace gates a crowd peeped in and sniffed the air, puffing the fumes of roasts and wines from the large dinner-table. It was imprudent to let the hungry inhale the vapor of good cheer, and the morose hear songs and cheers of hope and joy. The feast went on without any interruption, however. At the second course, the colonel of the Flanders regiment proposed the regular toast of the royal family, which were hailed so loudly that the queen may have heard the echoes in her refuge. An officer stood up. He was a man of wit and courage who foresaw the issue of this banquet, and was sincerely attached to the royal family. Or else he was a plotter, who tried to challenge the anti-popular opinion. He proposed the health of the nation. It was hooted down, and the feast took its plain meaning. The torrent resumed its downhill rush. To forget the country might pass, but to insult it was too much. It would take revenge. From that moment, discipline was at an end. The privates hobnobbed with their superiors, and it was really a brotherly meeting. What a pity that the unfortunate king and sorrowful queen could not witness such a gathering. Officious servants ran with exaggerated accounts of the festivities to Marie Antoinette, and urged that she should go with the young heir to the throne by her side in the monarch's absence. Madame, I entreat you to keep away, pleaded Count Charny. I have come away from the scene. They are too excited to make it seemly for your majesty. She was in one of her sulky, whimsical moods, and it suited her to tease Charny by going counter to his advice. She looked at him with disdain, and was going to answer him tartly, when he respectfully said, At least see what the king says about it. The king had just returned from hunting. Marie Antoinette ran to meet him, and dragging him with her in his riding boots and dusty as he was, she led him away without a glance at Charny, and crying, "'Come, my lord, to see a sight worthy of a king of France's regard.' With her left hand she led her son. The courtiers flowed before and after the trio. She reached the theatre doors just as the glasses were being emptied for the twentieth time, to shouts of, "'God save the king!' 
long live the queen the applause burst like a mine exploding when the king and queen and prince royal were seen on the floor the drunken soldiers and heated officers waved their hats on their swords and shouted the band began to play from the opera of richard coeur de lion blondel's song of oh richard oh my king which so transparently alluded to the king in a kind of bondage that all voices took up the song the enthusiastic queen did not see that the soldiers were intoxicated the surprised king had too much good sense not to see more clearly but he was weak and flattered by this reception so that he let the general frenzy overcome him charny who had drunk nothing but water during the part of the banquet which he attended stood pale at this participation of the royal family in what would now be a historical event by their presence but his apprehension was still greater when he saw his brother valence the hussar lieutenant approach the queen and speak to her when encouraged by a smile it was consent for she unpinned from her cap the cockade she was wearing and presented it to her imprudent knight it was not even a royal rosette but that of austria the black insignia of the foreign foe this was not rashness but treason to the country so mad was the concourse that they to whom valence charny presented the black cockade tore off their white ones and they who were wearing the tricolors trampled them underfoot the exultation became so high that the august guests had pains to return to their rooms without trampling on those who prostrated themselves in their passageway all this might have been overlooked as the freak of an orgy but after the royal family departed the guests turned the banquet hall into a town taken by assault the soldiers whooped and as the bugles blew the charge against what enemy the absent nation they climbed the balconies with the ladies held over helping hands the first soldier to reach the boxes was a grenadier whom a nobleman decorated with the ribbon he was wearing in his buttonhole the order of limburg that is of no value but all the sham battle was fought under the austrian colors while the national one was shouted down only a few dull protests were heard drowned under the trumpet blasts the hurrahs and the music of the band the tumult came menacingly to the crowd at the doors astonished at first they were soon indignant as it was known that the tricolor had been spurned and the black streamer flaunted in its stead an officer of the national guard had been badly beaten in the scuffle to uphold the honor of the latter but it was not known that charny the queen's favorite had taken all the blame of the outrages on himself the queen had returned to her rooms dazed by the scene a swarm of flatterers and adulators assailed her see the true spirit of your troops they said when the fury of the mob is bragged of think how it would melt away in the blast of this wild ardor of the military for monarchical ideas she was still under the illusion that this fire would spread over the kingdom from the palace at her will when next day receiving the national guard to whom she had promised to distribute their new flags she made this address i am happy to make this presentation 
the nation and the army ought to love the king as we love them both i was delighted with the rejoicing yesterday at these words emphasized by her glittering glance and sweetest voice the crowd grumbled while the soldiers applauded noisily she upheld us said one party while the other muttered we are betrayed am i not brave she asked of charny who looked on with sorrow and listened with terror to the point of folly he replied with a deeply clouded face end of chapter twenty three recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter Twenty Four of Taking the Bastille by Alexander Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Army of Women. The Queen was reposing after the day of felicitation. She had her janissaries around her, her cohort of young bravos, and having reckoned up her foes, she was wishful for the onslaught. Had she not the defeat of the Fourteenth of July? the loss of the Bastille to avenge. She treated Andrea with the former friendship for a time deadened in her bosom. But Charny, she only looked where he was when she was forced to give him an order. But this was no spite against the family, for it was noticed that she paid special attention to young Valence Charny, the hussar who had been given her Austrian rosette at the officer's dinner. Indeed, as he was crossing the gallery to announce to the master of the buckhounds that the king would go hunting that day, Marie Antoinette, who came out of the chapel, perceived him and greeted him. "'The king goes hunting?' she repeated. "'What a mistake when the weather is threatening. Is it not, Andrea?' "'Yes,' answered the lady of honor absently. "'Where will the chase be?' "'In Moidon Wood, my lady.' well accompany him and watch over him at this moment the head of the charnese appeared he smiled to andrea and remarked that is advice which my brother will bear in mind during the dangers to the king as well as during his pleasures at the sound of the voice for she had not seen him coming marie antoinette started and rejoined with studied rudeness i should have been astonished if that speech had come from any but your lordship for it contains a foreboding andrea saw her husband blanche but he bowed without retort he noticed her surprise that he bore it so patiently for he quickly said i am most unhappy that i can no longer speak to the queen without offence the no longer was spoken with a fine actor's due stress on the important words in a line speech is only bad when the intention is so snapped the queen through her teeth locked with anger the ear hears hostilely when the mind is hostile was the repartee of charny more aptly than politely i shall wait to reply till the count of charny is happier in his attacks went on the queen and i shall wait to attack till the queen's most excellent majesty is more happy in servitors than lately andrea grasped her husband's hand hastily and prepared to go out of the gallery with him 
when a glance from her mistress retained her. "'In short, what does your husband have to say to me?' she inquired. "'Sent to Paris yesterday by the king, I found it in great turmoil.' "'Yes, the Parisians are going to pull down the Bastille. "'The Dutch have taken Holland. "'Anything fresher, my lord?' "'It is true that they are pulling down the prison, "'but that affords them nothing but stones, "'and they want for bread.' "'Let them be hungry,' said the queen. "'What are we to do in the matter, "'since others rule the roost?' There was a day when the queen was the first to be compassionate in times of general distress, said the count. When she went up to the garrets and the prayers of those she helped rose from the garrets unto God. Yes, and I have been nicely repaid for this pity for others, returned the lady bitterly. One of my worst miseries came from my going into a garret. She alluded, of course, to the incident of the Queen's necklace, already described in this series. Because your Majesty was once deceived, is all humanity to be measured by that bushel? Oh, how our gracious lady was loved at that period! She darted a flaming look at him. To be brief, she said. What is happening in the capital? Only tell me what you have actually seen, for I want to depend on the accuracy of your words. I saw people packed on the waterside waiting for the flower-boats, others crowding the baker's doors waiting for bread. A famishing people, husbands watching their wives sadly, mothers mourning over their babies. Their fists were clenched and shaken in the direction of Versailles. Alas, I fear that the dangers which my brothers and I are ready to brave, and under which we may die, will not long be forthcoming. The queen had leaned on a window-sill, and with a view of expressing unconcern. She looked out instead of toward the count. They saw her start, and she exclaimed, "'Andrea!' Who is this writer? He seems by his speed to bear news in hot haste. Andrea went up, but almost instantly retreated, turning pale and gasped in reproach. To call me to see him? Charny had looked also, and he said, It is Dr. Gilbert. So it is, said Marie Antoinette, in such a tone that it was not possible to tell whether she had or had not visited on Andrea her personal spite. Gilbert arrived with the sequel to the ominous scenes which Charny described. The famished women had started for Versailles. They were escorted by ragamuffins willing to be shielded by their petticoats and ripe for any deeds. Seven or eight thousand women? repeated the queen when Gilbert had delivered his message of coming woe. She spoke with scorn. "'But they have been reinforced to double that number on the way. They are hungry and come to ask bread of the king.' 
Just what I feared, said Charny. What is to be done? Prepare the king to receive them, suggested Gilbert. Why expose him? She expostulated with that bravery and personal consciousness of her traits and of her husband's weakness, which ought not to be exhibited before strangers. But were Charny and Gilbert strangers, one destined to guard the king, the other the queen? The count replied for both, having resumed all his command, for he had sacrificed his pride. Madame, Gilbert is right. The king is still loved. He will make a speech and disarm these furies. But who will apprise the king? He is in my dull woods, and the ways may be blocked. Will your majesty see in me not the courtier, but the man of war? returned the count simply. A soldier is made to be slain. He did not wait for an answer or to hear the sigh, but rapidly went out and, mounting a guardsman's horse, sped away from Oidon. The sky was menacing, and rain began to dot the dust, but Versailles was filling with people who had heard a noise like approaching thunder. The soldiers took up their muskets slowly, and the horse guards got into the saddle with the hesitation of the soldier when his adversaries are beneath his notice. What could be done against women, who had thrown down their weapons on the road and had scarce the power to drag themselves into the town? Halfway they had divided eight loaves found at Sever, thirty-two pounds of bread among seven thousand. Maillard had accompanied them and induced the last who were armed to lay aside their weapons at the first houses of the place. He suggested that they should sing Long Live Henry the Fourth" to show that they had no ill feelings against royalty. They sang in a feeble whine. Great was the amazement at the palace, where the harpies and furies were expected to see the tottering singers, hunger giving the giddiness of intoxication, pressing their haggard thinned, livid, blotched, and dusty faces against the gilded bars of the gates, and hanging on by their bony hands. From the weird groups came wails and howls, while the dull eyes emitted sparks. Now and again the hands let go the bars to be brandished in threat, or held out imploringly. It was a gloomy sight. "'What do you want?' challenged the saint priest minister of paris bread was the cry when you had but one master you were never hungry he replied testily you see how you stand since you have twelve hundred he came away yelled at while he ordered the gates to be kept closed but they had soon to be opened to a deputation from parliament which maillard had obtained unfortunately Valence Charny with the guards had ridden against the mob. Two women of the twelve with the deputation were wounded, to whom Charny, who had returned to announce the arrival of the king, and Gilbert rushed to assist. "'Open the doors,' called out the king. "'A palace is a sanctuary. It must receive all callers.' "'An asylum for all but the kings and queens,' muttered Marie Antoinette. 
deputy meunier spoke for the deputation while a flower girl who had started this woman's war by beating the fall in on a drum undertook to address the king unfortunately she was so weak that she fainted after gasping bread my lord help cried the king andrea ran up with her smelling bottle and charny gave the queen a reproachful glance for not having thought of this act turning pale she retired to her own rooms get the couches ready she said the king and i are going to rambouillet meanwhile the flower girl finding herself in the king's arms on coming to her senses screamed with bashfulness and tried to kiss his hand i will give you a kiss my pretty one he said you are well worth it oh how good you are so you will give the order that the grain shall come into paris to stop the famine i will sign the order my child the king said though i am afraid it will do no good sitting at a table he was about to write when a discharge of firearms followed a solitary shot a second charge of cavalry had been made on the women and a man of their supporters had fired a gun to break the arm of lieutenant Savonnière of the guards he was going to strike a young soldier who was defending with naked hands a woman who had dropped behind him for protection the bullets from the lifeguards carbines had killed one woman the mob replied and two soldiers were knocked off their horses at the same time shouts of make room for the guns were heard as the men of st antoine's ward dragged up three field pieces which they leveled at the palace gates luckily the rain had damped the priming powder and the match suddenly a whisper came to gilbert without his knowing who spoke general lafayette is half an hour's march away and coming it was a valuable hint gilbert ran and caught one of the horses of the dismounted guards and as he dashed off, the other followed his stable companion. Hearing the hoofs, Gilbert thought he was pursued and looked back over his shoulder. He saw the animal caught by the reins and his throat cut. Then the people fell on the carcass with knives and cut it up. While Gilbert was racing to meet Lafayette, who arrived with the National Guards, the king was signing the acceptance of the Resolution of the Rights of Man for Meunier and the order to let grain pass into Paris for Louis-Saint-Champry, the flower-girl. As the first drum-beats were heard of the National Guards entering Versailles, the king felt his arm respectfully touched. It was by Andrea. "'Sire, the queen supplicates your majesty not to wait for the Parisians, but take the head of your lifeguards and the Flanders regiment which will cut their way through.' is this your advice count charny yes sire if without stopping you cross the frontier otherwise you should stay the king shook his head he stayed not from having courage but because he had not strength to go a runaway king he muttered tell the queen to depart alone he said to Andrea, who went on her errand. Five minutes afterwards the queen came and stood by her husband's side. "'I have come to die with you,' 
she said unaffectedly. "'How handsome she is now,' muttered Charny, but she heard him, for she started. "'I believe in all truth that it is better to die than live.' "'Sire,' said Dr. Gilbert, running in, "'fear nothing now. General Lafayette is here.' The king did not like Lafayette, but there his feelings stopped. While the queen hated him and let her hate be seen, she took three steps back, but the king stayed her with an imperative gesture. The courtiers formed two groups. Charny and Gilbert stood next to the king. Steps were heard up to the door of many persons, but all alone General Lafayette entered. As he did so, some voice exclaimed, "'Here comes Cromwell!' "'No, sir.' said the marquise smiling cromwell would not have walked unguarded into the presence of charles first louis the sixteenth turned to those imprudent friends who had made an enemy of the man hurrying to his relief count he said to charny i remain now that general lafayette is here there is nothing to fear retire the troops on rambouillet the National Guards will take the outposts and the lifeguards the palace. Come, General, he said to Lafayette. I have to confer with you. Come with us, Doctor, he added to Gilbert. We must get away today, thought the Queen. Tomorrow it will be too late. As she was going to her own rooms, she was lighted by a red glare outside the palace. The mob had made a barbecue of the soldiers' horses. End of chapter 24 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia Chapter 25 of Taking the Bastille by Alexander Dumas Translated by Henry L. Williams This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Night of Horrors The night went by quietly. At midnight, the Queen had tried to go out to the Trianon Palace, but the National Guards had refused to let her pass. When she spoke of feeling fear, they answered that she was safer here than any other place. She felt encouraged indeed on her return home by having her most faithful guards around her. At the door was Valence Charny, leaning on the carbine used by the lifeguards as well as the dragoons in those days. It was not the habit of the indoor guards to carry swords on duty. "'Oh, it is you, Viscount, always faithful,' she said. "'Am I not at my post, where my brother set me, while he is by the king? He is the head of our family, and his place is to die before the head of the kingdom.' "'Yes,' said the royal lady with marked bitterness. "'You only have the right to die for the queen.' "'It will be a great honor for me if God permits me to accomplish that duty,' said the young man, bowing. "'What has become of the Countess?' she asked, returning after making a step to go, for a suspicion had stung her in the heart. "'She came past ten minutes ago, and is having her bed made in Your Majesty's antechamber.' The Queen bit her lip. It was impossible to surprise the Charnese in default in matters of duty. "'Thank you, sir,' 
she said with a winning nod and wave of the hand for so well guarding the queen thank your brother from me for so well guarding the king in the ante-room andrea was respectfully awaiting her i thank you as i have thanked the viscount and your husband through him andrea made a courtesy and moved aside for her to go by the queen did not ask her to follow for this cold devotion which lasted unto death put her ill at ease gilbert had gone away with general lafayette who had been twelve hours on horseback and was ready to drop at the gates they saw billet who had come with the national guards ready to follow gilbert like a dog to the end of the world all was quiet we repeat up to three in the morning then arrived a second army from town the other was composed of women and came for bread this one came for vengeance and was composed of friends the leaders were marat a hideous long-legged hunched-backed dwarf named verrier who came to the surface from the mud when society was stirred and the duke of aiguillon disguised as a fish-fog they came like camp followers after a battle to fire and pillage there had been plenty of killing to do at the bastille but no plunder and they reckoned to make up for that at versailles at half-past five in the morning five or six hundred of this riffraff forced or scaled the great gate a sentinel had fired an alarm shot which slew one of the assailants divided as by a giant sword-stroke the plunderers broke into two gangs one aiming at the royal plate the other at the crown jewels one stormed the queen's apartments the other made for the chapel where the kings were the sea rose like a high tide the guards of the king at that hour were the regular sentry watching at the door and an officer who rushed out of the antechamber with a halberd snatched from the hands of the frightened swiss porter who goes there challenged the sentinel three times while leveling his carbine the officer knew what excitement would result from firearms being shot off there in the private apartments so he beat up the gun with his halberd and barred the stairs with it clear across as he faced the intruders what do you want he challenged them oh dear nothing of course jeered several voices we are old friends of her majesty so let us pass you are pretty friends to bring war here there was no reply but an ominous laugh a man seized the axe-head spear and tried to wrest it from the officer and as he would not let go he bit his hand the officer tore the weapon away shortened it so as to use it as an axe and split the cannibal's skull with one chop but the violence of the blow broke the staff in two made for ornament rather than use as it was the officer remained armed with two weapons in one the axe and the spear while he used both effectively the sentinel opened the antechamber door and called for help half a dozen guardsmen ran out to the rescue of lord charny gentlemen shouted the sentry swords flashed in the light of a lamp in the lobby and the assailants were given some work to do on either side of charny cries of pain were heard and the blood spurted while the ruffians rolled down the marble steps which they streaked with gore the ante-room door opened and the sentry called out by order of the king gentlemen return 
the guards profited by the momentary confusion of these foes to execute the retreat, with Charny the last to enter the haven. The door was hardly closed behind him, and the two large bolts shot into the sockets before a hundred blows sounded on it, but they piled up the furniture against it so that it would hold out for ten minutes. During that time, reinforcements might arrive. Meanwhile, the second gang had darted toward the queen's apartments, but the stairs were narrow and only two can go up abreast. It was in the corridor that Valence Charny watched. He fired when his challenge was not replied to. The door opened and Andrea appeared, having heard the shot. "'Save Her Majesty!' cried the young man. "'They are after her life. I am alone against fifty, but never mind. I shall hold the door as long as I can. Make haste!' The assailants stole upon him, and he banged the door to, shouting, "'Fasten the bolts! I shall live long enough to give the queen time to flee!' Turning round, he ran two wretches through with his bayonet. The queen had heard all this, and Andrea found her afoot when she entered her bedroom. Two of her ladies hastily dressed her and urged her into the private way, while Andrea, always calm and indifferent to danger for herself, bolted each door by which they passed. At the junction of the communication of the two royal apartments, a man was waiting. It was Charny, covered with blood. "'The king!' cried Marie Antoinette on seeing this. "'You promised to save him.' "'He is saved,' replied the Count. Looking through the doorways and not seeing among the members of the royal family and others his wife, he was going to ask about her when a glance from the Queen stopped him. He had no need to speak, for her gaze plunging into his heart had read his wish. "'Rest easy. She is coming,' she said. She ran to the little prince, whom she took in her arms. Closing the last door, Andrea came into the bull's-eye hall like the rest. She and her husband exchanged no word. Their smiles were ample. Strange. Those long-parted hearts began to yearn for one another since danger surrounded them. "'The king is looking for you, madam,' replied Charny to the queen's inquiries. "'He was going to your rooms by one corridor.' while you came to his by another. They heard the assassins yelling, Down with the Austrians! Death to Messalina! No more of Lady Vito! Let us throttle her! Let her hang! A couple of pistol shots were heard at the same time, and two holes were bored in the door. One bullet whizzed close to the young prince's head and buried itself in the hangings. Oh, heavens! We shall all die! screamed the queen, falling on her knees. At a sign from Charny, the life-guardsmen formed a shelter for her and the royal children. The king now joined them, pale of face and his eyes full of tears. He was calling for the queen as she had for him. On seeing her, he ran into her arms. "'Saved!' exclaimed she. "'By the count!' replied the monarch, indicating Charny. "'And he has saved you, too?' "'It was his brother,' said she. "'My lord, we owe more to your family than we can ever repay,' observed the sovereign. The queen blushed as she met Andrea's glance and turned her head aside. The blows on the door resounded. "'Gentlemen, we must hold the post for an hour,' 
said the Count. It will take that time to kill us seven if we hold out stoutly. It is not likely that help will not have come for their majesties. With these words he caught hold of an immense sideboard, and his example being followed, a head of shattered furniture formed a wall in which the guards cut loopholes to shoot through. The queen prayed over her children, stifled their wailing and tears. The king retired into a closet adjoining to burn papers which ought not to fall into strange hands. The door was chopped at till pieces fell off every instant, and through the gaps blood pikes were thrust and jagged bayonets which tried to dart death. At the same time, bullets found holes in the breastwork and furrowed the plaster on the gilded ceiling. At length, a bench on top of the sideboard fell down, the buffet lost one panel, and bloody arms were plunged in through the orifice to make the crevice larger. The guards had burnt the last cartridge, though not vainly, for through the channel dead bodies were seen strewing the lobby. At the shrieks of the ladies who supposed death was to leap in at the breach, the king returned. "'Sire,' said Charny, "'shut yourself up with the queen in the most remote room. Fasten all the doors after you. At each door let two of us stand. I ask to be the last and guard the last. I warrant we shall keep them off for two hours. They take forty minutes full to get through this.' The king hesitated. It seemed so shameful to step from room to room, closing doors on brave men left to die for him. He would not have drawn back but for the queen. If she had not had her children with her, she would have stayed beside him. But alas, king or subject, all have a flaw in the iron heart through which pierces terror when boldness elopes. The king was about to give the order to retreat when the arms were suddenly retracted, the spears and bayonets disappeared, and the shouts and thwarts were silenced. In the instant of stillness all waited with parted lips, listening ears, and held breath. The tramp of regular troops was heard. "'The National Guard!' shouted Charny. "'My Lord Charny!' bellowed a hearty voice on the other side of the door. "'Farmer Belay!' cried Charny as a well-known face showed itself. "'Is it you, my friend?' "'Yes, my lord. Where is the king and the queen?' "'Here, safe and sound.' "'God be thanked! This way, Dr. Gilbert!' Two women's hearts thrilled variously at this name, Andrea's and the queen's. Charny, turning instinctively, saw both turn pale. He sighed as he shook his head. "'Open the doors, gentlemen,' cried the king. "'Here are friends.' The life-guardsmen hurried to tear down the remains of the barrier. During their work the voice of Marquis Lafayette was heard. "'Gentlemen of the National Guard, I pledge my word last night to the king that nothing appertaining to his majesty should incur harm. If you allow his life-guards to be hurt, you break my word of honor and I shall no longer be worthy of being your chief. When the obstacles were removed, the two first persons seen were General Lafayette and Gilbert. A little to their left was Belay, delighted at having had a part in the king's deliverance. It was he who had gone and roused up the general for this deed. "'Long live the king! Long live the queen!' 
roared Billet. Ah, if you had stayed in Paris, this would not have happened. General, what do you advise? asked the king of the Marquis. I think you should show yourself at the window. Gilbert nodded, and Louis walked straight to the window, opened it, and stepped out on the balcony. Long live the king, was the universal shout. Come to Paris, added others, while a few but the most dreadful ones. Let us have the queen out here. All shivered. The king lost color, as did Gilbert and Charny. She looked at Lafayette, who said, Fear nothing. All alone? She questioned. With the charming manners he preserved to old age, Marquis Lafayette gently detached the clinging children from their mother and urged them out upon the balcony. He offered his hand to Marie Antoinette, adding, If your majesty will rely on me, all will go well. He led her out on the balcony above the marble courtyard, a sea of inflamed human heads. The yell that burst forth at sight of the queen was immense, but none could say whether it was threat or joy. Lafayette bent and kissed her hand. This time applause rent the air, for the meanest there did homage to beauty and womanhood. "'Strange people,' muttered the Austrian. "'But what about my lifeguards? Can you do nothing for them?' let me have one of them charny drew back for he had offered himself as the scapegoat for the officers revelry of the first october and he did not want amnesty andrea took his hand and also stood back again those two had understood each other and the queen flashed her eye with panting bosom she gasped in a broken voice another a guardsman obeyed, who had not his captain's reasons. Lafayette led him out on the balcony, put his own tricolored cockade in his hat, and shook his hand. "'Bravo, Lafayette! The lifeguards are not a bad sort!' A few voices remonstrated, but they were drowned by the cheers. "'All is over, and the fine weather sets in,' said the general. "'For the calm not to be broken again,' one final sacrifice is necessary come to paris general you may announce that i shall depart for the capital in an hour with the queen and the rest of the royal family this order seemed to remind charny of something he had forgotten and he sprang away with alacrity the queen followed him both guided by tracks of blood the queen shut her eyes, and, groping for support, met the hand of Charny, which led her on. Suddenly she felt him shudder. "'A dead man!' she shrieked, opening her eyes. "'Will your majesty excuse me, taking away my arm? I find what I sought. The remains of my brother, Valence. Here lay the unfortunate young man whom the head of the Charnese had ordered to let himself be slain for the queen's sake. He had punctiliously obeyed. End of chapter 25
Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 26 of Taking the Bastille by Alexandre Dumas, translated by Henry L. Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Belay's Sorrow At the time when the queen and her consort were leaving Versailles, never more to return under its roof, the following scene was taking place in one of its inner yards, damp with rain, which a bitter fall gale was beginning to dry up. Over a dead body, a man clad in black was bending, a man in the royal lifeguard's uniform knelt on the other side. Three paces off stood a third person with fixed eyes and closed hands. The body was of a young man not more than twenty-three, all of whose blood seemed to have poured out through ghastly wounds in the head and chest. His furrowed and livid white breast appeared yet to heave with the disdainful breath of hopeless defense. The head thrown back, and the mouth open in pain and anger, recalled the fine figure of speech of the ancient Romans. And with a long-drawn wail the spirit fled to the abode of shades. The man in black was Gilbert, the lifeguard's officer, Count Charny, the bystander, Belay. The corpse was Viscount Valence Charny's. Gilbert regarded it with that fixed gaze which suspends the fleeing soul in the dying, and seems in the dead able to recall the fled one. Cold and rigid, he is dead, and really dead, he said at last. Charny uttered a hoarse groan, and pressing the corpse in his arms emitted so heart-rending a sob that the physician shuddered and Belay went off a little to hide his head in a corner of the quadrangle. Suddenly the mourner raised the body, set it against the wall in a sitting posture, and slowly came away, but looking to see if it would not revive and follow him. Gilbert remained on one knee, resting his chin on his hand thoughtfully, appalled and motionless. Then Belay quitted the nook and came to him, saying as he had no longer heard the wails of the Count, which had made his heart ache. Alas, Dr. Gilbert, this is really civil war, and what you foretold is coming to pass. Only... The trouble comes sooner than I believed, and perhaps sooner than you calculated. I have seen villains slaughter wicked men. I have trembled in all my limbs and felt a horror for such monsters. But yet the men who were killed so far were worthless. Now, as you predicted, they are killing honest folk. They have killed Viscount Charny. I do not shudder, but I grieve. I do not feel so much horror for the murderers as fear for myself. The young gentleman has been foully done to death, for he was only a soldier and fought. He ought not to have been butchered. He uttered a sigh from his vitals. To think 
and I knew him when a child. He continued. I can see him now, riding along on his little gray pony, carrying bread round to the poor on behalf of his mother. He was a fine pink and white-faced child, with big blue eyes, who was always laughing. Well, it is queer, since I have seen him laying there, bleeding and disfigured. It is no longer as a corpse that I think of him, but as the pretty boy with the basket on his left arm and a purse in his right hand. Really, Dr. Gilbert, I believe that I have had enough of this kind of thing, and I do not care to see any more of it. For as all you foretold is a common true, I shall be seeing you die. And then be calm, Belay, said the physician, shaking his head gently. My hour has not struck. But mayhap mine has. Down yonder the harvest is rotting. The land is laying unplowed, and my family languishes, whom I love, and ten times more fondly since I have seen this corpse, for which his family will weep. What are you driving at, Belay? Do you suppose that I am going to pity your fate? Oh, no, answered the farmer simply. But as I must cry out when I am in pain, and as crying out leads to nothing, I want to relieve myself in my own way. In short, I want to go home on my farm, Master Gilbert. What again? Look ye, a voice down there is calling me home. That voice is prompting you to desertion, Belay. I am no soldier to desert, sir. What you want to do is worse than desertion in a soldier. Uh, I should like that explained, doctor. You come to Paris to overthrow an old house? And you turn away before the building is down? For fear it will tumble on my friends, yes, doctor. Rather, to save yourself. Why, there is no law against taking care of number one, said Belay. A pretty calculation as if the stones might not bound in falling and rolling and kill the runaway at a distance oh you know i am not to be scared then you will remain for i have need of you here my dear belay my folks also have need of me at home belay Belay, I thought you had agreed with me that a man has no home when he loves his country. I should like to know 
if you would talk like that if your son sebastian lay there in that young gentleman's stead he pointed to the corpse belay a day will come when my son will see me laid out like that was the stoical response so much the worse for you doctor if he is as cold as you over it i hope he will bear it better than me and be all the firmer from having had my example then you want to inure the youth to seeing blood flow at his tender age to be accustomed to fires murders gibbets riots night attacks to see queens insulted and kings badgered and when he is cool like you and steel like a sword-blade do you expect he will love and respect you no i do not want him to see any such sights which is why i have sent him down to villers cotterets along with ange pitou though i almost regret it at present you say you are sorry for it today why today because he would have seen the fable of the lion and the mouse put in action which would be reality to him henceforth what do you mean dr gilbert i say that he would have seen a brave and honest farmer come to town one who can neither read nor write who never dreamed that his life could have any influence good or bad over the highest destinies he would have seen that this man who was about to quit paris as he wishes once more to do contribute efficaciously towards saving the king the queen and the two royal children how is this dr gilbert asked billet staring how sublimely innocent you are i will tell you did you not awake at the first noise in the night guess that the tumult was a tempest about to break on the royal residence and run to arouse general lafayette for the general was sleeping that was natural enough he had been riding about for twelve hours he had not been abed for four-and-twenty you led him to the palace continued gilbert you led him into the thick of the scoundrels crying back villains the revenger is upon ye that's right enough i did that well belay my friend you see that you have great compensation though you could not prevent this young gentleman from being butchered you did perhaps stay the great crime of the slaughter of the royal family ingrate would you leave your country's service just when such a mighty reward was yours but who would know anything about it when i never suspected it myself you and i belay is not that enough the farmer meditated for a while before he said as he held out his hand to the physician i guess you are right doctor 
but you know man is a weak selfish unsteady creature you are the only one who is just the other style what made you so misfortune replied the other with a smile filled with more grief than a sob lord how singular i thought misfortune soured a man weak men yes but if i were to meet misfortune and it was to make me wicked you may meet misfortune but you will never become wicked i answer for that then sighed belay i shall stay and see the game out but i shall show the white feather more than once like this but i shall be at hand to uphold you so be it said the farmer throwing a lazy look on viscount charny's body which servants came to remove he said what a vastly pretty boy he was with his laughing eye when he rode along on his little grey with the basket and the purse poor little master shiny poor belay he had not the mesmerist's prophetic soul and he could not dream what events we have to trace now that the king and queen have started to paris to follow the road marked by the revolution's red-hot plowshare now that charny begins to see what a winsome and noble wife he has now that our minor characters are standing out now that poor ange Petou, quitting paris with regret is going to play a grand part in the drama of his own country our romance is but well on the way we shall meet our dear old friends and alas we shall fight our stubborn old enemies in the pages of the continuation to this book under the title of the hero of the people end of chapter 26 end of the marie antoinette romances volume 4 taking the bastille by alexander dumas translated by henry l williams recording by john van stan savannah georgia thanks for listening